can answer out loud if you want, but I prefer you just keep it kind of to yourself. Uh, I, that, that was specifically for John in the back. If you had the chance, would you want to know your future? Would you want to know the future of others? Would you want to know what next week looks like? Next month? Next year? And if you could know your future next month, next year, and the future of others, would you do something today within your control to alter or change your future or the future of others? John, I really appreciate it back here. You're really, really quiet. That's good. <laughs> Whether we want to know the details of our future or not, it is certain that Jesus wants us to be aware of some things that are in store for all of our futures. And that's what he talks about to his disciples in, John, in Mark chapter 13. The title of the message this morning is Things to Come. We'll look at Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through 23. But before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us to come and to be together. It's been described of the church as the church gathered and the church scattered. And this week we've been scattered, and now you've brought us back together for encouragement, for fellowship, maybe for accountability, maybe for uh, a new face to meet. God, you've given us a time in the service already to rehearse your truth through the gifts and talents of those who led us in worship. And now, God, we come to the part of the service where we open your word and we ask you to teach us in all wisdom and all truth by your spirit. And that you would find us this morning, God, open to receive all that you want us to receive and respond. God, I pray this morning as we open your word and your spirit teaches us that it would not be just information, but that it would be transformation. And we need your spirit's help to do that. So would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you, that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. To give us some context about what is going on in this passage, right prior to the passage that we'll read this morning, remember Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem through the triumphal entry. Then he's prophesied the destruction of Israel by cursing this fig tree on his way in and out. Then he cleans out the temple, overturns the money changers' tables. He teaches in the temple with the different uh, groups of religious leaders. He teaches about vine growers and about taxes and the Sanhedrin about re uh, the resurrection. And then in response to the religious rulers, they say, tell us what is the greatest commandment. And he responds with two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Steve, a couple of weeks ago, says to live out that in a practical way is to give back. 
And he used the example of the widow's mind. And this morning, we see that Jesus is leaving the temple. In fact, Jesus is leaving the temple for good. It's the last time he'll be in the temple. The cross is only a day in front of him. And we'll see in this passage that Jesus is talking about the things to come, the end times. Now, I want to go through these verses this morning, but I need to make a disclaimer. I'm not going to talk about the tribulation. I'm not going to talk about the rapture. I'm not going to talk about timing of any of that. But I am going to talk about the things that Jesus wants us to be aware of when the end times come. The first thing that Jesus talks about in verses 1 through 4 is the prophecy of destruction. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4 says this, As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, when looking at this passage and others like it, there are all kinds of questions that come up about what the end times will look like and even more questions about when it actually takes place. And the disciples were asking the same thing. Scholars have said about this particular passage in Mark, it is by far the most difficult in his book. In fact, along with its parallels in the other Gospels, some consider it the most difficult passage in the New Testament. One author has said, the fact is, we have yet to find a scholar or a commentator who can perfectly unravel the knotty problems of this passage. And what's even more difficult is when you have one commentator disagreeing with another commentator, or one scholar saying this and another scholar saying that. So we approach this with humility and dependence on the Lord. Now in verse 1, we see something as Jesus was going out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teachers, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, doesn't this seem like a weird question, sort of out of context? That the disciples will want Jesus to notice the stones and buildings. Now, Jesus is going out of the temple to the Mount of Olives. And so this passage of Scripture is generally called the Olivet Discourse, meaning that he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, looking at Jerusalem, and he's describing and teaching about prophecy. And as he's going to the Mount of Olives, as he's teaching about this prophecy, one of the disciples says, look at the stones. Look at the buildings, how beautiful they are. Now, doesn't that seem like an out-of-place, strange thing to say at this particular time in Jesus' life? Well, some scholars have believed and thought that one of the reasons that they say that is they saw Jesus and maybe have seen the weight and the grief And the time he has spent inside the temple. Remember the heaviness, the debates, the disagreements that he had to endure. endure. And also, not just to mention the debates and what he had to endure, they were also plotting to kill him. And so Peter, I think it's Peter, doesn't say, but I think it's Peter, says, Jesus, I know it's been horrible on the inside, but look at the outside, how awesome it looks. Look at the rocks. Look at the building. Now, the reason he says that is because the temple itself, in particular, was a massive, beautiful structure. 
The Jews felt that its size made it, perma- made it like a permanent object, as well as the fact that it represented to them the presence of God. In fact, when you go to Israel today, you can still see some of these stones and still some of the Orthodox Jews still pray at where these stones were, and they're massive at the Wailing Wall. Now, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, gives us more detail of the temple. He says this, Now, the outward face of the temple, it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a fiery splendor and made those who looked at it avert their eyes away. Of the stones, Josephus says, some of them were 45 cubits in length, 5 cubits high, and 6 cubits in depth. Now, we don't know what cubits are, so I'm going to translate that. 67 feet long, one stone, 7 feet tall, and 9 feet deep. That's a big rock. And it was probably one of these stones that the disciple says to Jesus, Jesus, Look at how massive and awesome this stone is. To them, the temple looked as secure and as firm as earth itself. And that's why people were tempted to trust in the temple and to put their security in it. Yet Jesus prophesies just a few decades later that this temple is going to be torn down and one stone won't be on top of the other. What looked secure was, in fact, on the verge of total collapse. And so what is Jesus' point? Don't build your security on things on the outside. It comes from a relationship with me on the inside. No matter how massive and permanent it may look. Our security rests not on outward illusions of stability, but on the unshakable conviction promise and presence of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Now listen to verse 2. He says to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which is not be torn down. The disciples were impressed with with the temple and the rocks and the stone and the massiveness. And Jesus says, I created them. I'm not impressed. Don't put your security there. They will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD when the Roman army came through and destroyed the temple. Now, Jesus goes on a little bit further and talks about destruction in verses 14 through 20. Listen to this. But when you see the abomination and desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go into get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Jesus in these passages, in these verses, describes the immediate, tremendous, and powerful things that are going to come. In verse 14, it says people will have to flee. Sudden peril will be upon those. Verses 15 and 16, it will be so fast that people will not have time to go back into their house and grab their coat. They'll have to leave the city immediately. 
And if they don't leave, they'll be trapped and suffer the consequences. In verse 17 through 19, it talks about the Jerusalem will be a terrible time. And if you're pregnant or if you have nursing babies, those pulls and those responsibilities are going to make it even worse. And verse 19 says it's going to be new. It's going to be like nothing we have ever seen before. Now, Jesus has given his disciples this prophecy of what's to come, and it is not pretty. Now, one of the great dilemmas of this passage is when is this going to take place? And that's the exact question that these four disciples with Jesus ask. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the signs when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, one of the things we have to understand is that these signs, these events, are not necessarily in chronological order. Prophecy also can have this dual fulfillment. There's things that happen immediately, more immediately, in the near future, like the destruction in 70 A.D., or there's also things in the far future that haven't happened yet, like we'll see in Revelation chapter 6 through, and chapters 6 through 8, when Jesus comes back again. But uh, the idea for the disciples to hear Jesus say that the temple is going to be destroyed had to be a foreign concept. That this massive structure was going to be destroyed. It seemed crazy and unreasonable. Now, Jesus also gives this big picture of what is to come. There's a general overview, and now he gets a little more, more specific about persecution. Listen to what he says in verses 7 through 9, that the persecution is coming. He says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now, in verse 7, Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. Wars have always been with us. Now, listen to this, this uh, statement by, by uh, Will Durant from 1968. This is 55 years ago. He said, in the last 3,241 years of recorded history, only 268 of them have seen no war. That's less than 1% where we've not seen any war. It's also obvious that nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes. Now, some people have taken all this wars and famines and earthquakes and time and calculated and tried to come up. Is this the time when Jesus is coming back, when all these things add up? Now, I remember in my 40-plus years, I've always heard people, 40-plus uh, years of being a believer, all people always talking about when Jesus is coming back. How many of you remember in 1988, when somebody said, 88 reasons, Jesus is coming back. It didn't happen. People are always trying to figure this out. And the point is this. A close reading of this passage here seems to say that the natural disasters and man-made disasters are not a sign of the end, but it gives us a taste of what the end will be like. In verse 8, Jesus says it'll be like birth pangs. 
birth pains. What are birth pains? Birth pains can also mean that a mom is in labor. And labor means work. That there is work going on. But like labor, it can stop, it can start, it can slow down, it can speed up. But here's the part about birth pains and labor. The onset of labor does not tell you when the baby's going to come. Only that the baby will come. And so Jesus is saying, these are birth pains. These are things that will happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's imminent. These things are merely the beginning. And just like birth contractions or labor pains, we can expect them to get more intense as we draw nearer and nearer to Christ's second coming. The existence of these things that we are living in now is just part of the age we live in from the time Jesus first came to the time he comes again. And so it's really important that we don't focus on the the contractions or the birth pangs as much as we focus on the hope of Jesus, which is to come. So when Mark's readers see these kinds of things happening during the Jewish rebellion, Jesus says, don't be frightened. Don't freak out. These are simply times, again, of what it means to live of when I depart and when I come again. He says to watch out. He says to know about it. He says to think about it, to understand it. But don't panic. In fact, what he really emphasized in verse 9, he says, you must, Be on guard. In other words, you must guard yourself. So the focus seems to me not so much on the outward as it is on the inward. Notice in verse 9 that Jesus makes a switch from things that are distant to things that are close. It says they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now, now who is he talking to? Remember the setting. He comes out of the temple, walks up the Mount of Olives, he's sitting with his four friends, and he says, you. You. You will be delivered to the courts. You will be flogged in the sinning is, and you will stand before the governors. And so by saying you, he's saying to his disciples then, and he's saying to the disciples now, You. This verse is being fulfilled as we sit here this morning. Remember, the book of Acts tells us how Paul was beaten and dragged before the rulers. And we know early Christians like Stephen, they were stoned. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ, disciples, right now this very minute, who are being held and prosecuted because of their faith. As recent as a couple of weeks ago, I got a message from my friend who lives in another part of the world telling me about people who are arrested and being tortured because they follow Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. Because of my name. They didn't do anything wrong. They said they love Jesus. 
Now, as a side note, while you are here this morning, when you come to Grace, we want you to be as safe and as comfortable as we can possibly make it for you. We want you to have a great time in fellowship. We provide coffee and some refreshments. We love to see you talking. We, we, we provide a chair with cushion. We want you to feel not too cold, not too hot, not too much fan, but enough fan. We want there to be some good music, not too fast, not too slow, not too loud. We want you to be completely safe and comfortable. We want it to be a place that is inviting and that is hospitable. We hear comments about how we can improve in all those areas on a weekly basis. And so sometimes I have to step back and think about other believers around the world and the stories that I have seen and heard, the places and conditions people worship, and I have to pause in myself about it and gain perspective and purpose and think and remind myself and caution myself that as a follower of Jesus, I have to pay attention to my attitude that wants to become so comfortable when it involves following and worshiping Jesus. Would I, would you, still worship and follow Jesus if the conveniences and comforts were removed? Jesus says, check yourself, guard yourself. In the midst of of the peril and destruction that is to come, guard yourself. Now, another fascinating persecution to come is what Jesus described as being flogged in the synagogues. Who's he talking to? The disciples. And they're going to be flogged in the synagogues. Why? For his namesake. The place where you would hope to find peace and encouragement, prayer, forgiveness, hope, and restoration, Jesus said was going to be a place of persecution. And that, too, is happening in our day. And Jesus goes on to say, not only will there be persecutions of the courts and in the synagogues, but even persecution against family. Listen to verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child, and children will raise up against parents and have them put to death. William Barclay, one of the commentators, says this, Life becomes hell on earth when personal loyalties are destroyed and when there is no love which a man can trust. Jesus says persecutions are going to come from all sides, in all manners, in all forms, even from families. And why? Verse 13, You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Because of Christ's name, that is who and why the persecution that is to come. Now, this idea of persecution for most of us is like a foreign concept. In fact, we can begin saying things like this that creep into our minds. Man, it's really going to be bad for them. And as Americans, we can't even get our heads 
around what people are going through in other parts of the world. Because as Americans, who are we to be persecuted? Now, I'm, not com- I'm convinced that I-, I think Jesus is not trying to scare his disciples or he's not trying to scare us. But because he loved them and us so much, he gives them this understanding of what is to come. But even deeper than that, I think he wants us to understand two things. In following Jesus, there will be sacrifices and there will be persecution. And two, we have to ask ourselves if Jesus is worth it. Be on guard. Guard your heart. Guard your attitude. Guard against our personal comfort when it comes to following Jesus. I don't think Jesus wants us to focus on the details of governments or religious leaders, but to ask ourselves how deep and strong is our loyalty is to him, even in the midst of persecution and pain. Jesus says in verse 10 and 11, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now notice Mark connects in verse 10 two things, the persecution and the gospel. They're linked together. Right in the middle of this passage of all the destruction that is to come, the gospel. It's the link. It's almost as if this gospel has permeated the nation and the nation leaders are coming to the people with the gospel and saying, what is this? They want an accounting of it. And in the middle of this talk of destruction, this talk of peril, talk of the gospel, Jesus gives this promise in verse 11, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say, but whatever, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. That is where we find our security. Not in the rocks of the temple or in the duties of religion, but in the promised relationship in Christ. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples and us. The last point I want to leave with us in this is this. We must determine now to be diligent in knowing and living the truth. Listen to verse 5 and 6 and then verses 21, 22. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and he will will mislead many. Verse 21, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, he is here. Here is the Christ, or behold, he is there. Do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. If somebody comes to us and says, hey, I saw Jesus in Ridgeland, let's not believe them, okay? (laughs) We must not be deceived. Here's a few simple truths and practices about not being deceived that we can determine now to participate in. And the first one is this. Be a student of God's word. Notice that I didn't say just read it or hear it. I said be a student of it. Study it. Understand it. Understand the ways of Jesus in it. 
Understand his attitude, his thoughts, his responses, his purposes, his clear understanding of his father. You know, it's been said, and I looked this up to make sure, that federal agents of the FBI, when they are trying to spot counterfeit, they don't study the counterfeit. They study the real thing. And they know the real bill so well that if anything looks different than the real thing, they can spot it. That's what it's like for you and I as followers of Jesus. That we are so in tune and know Jesus so well that anything out there that presents itself as an imposter, we immediately recognize it. And how will we know that? Will we pray? Here's a, a neat story. When a doctoral student at Princeton asked this question, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? Albert Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Frederick Buechner, when asked about his desire to pray, described himself as a helpless hungerer after the marvelous. It's a great description. One pastor said this, I am sometimes asked why I seem to rage against modern media so much. I'm always talk, taking shots at screens and Netflix in my talks. I'm not a fundamentalist by any stretch of the imagination, and I value art and storytelling to my core. The real reason that I don't want my hunger for the marvelous to die. He goes on to say this, I don't want the desire for God to be choked out by the sensational and the spectacular that the world lays before me in an almost irresistible way. John Piper wrote this in regards to that. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife, Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not the enemies, it's not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus says, guard yourself. Study the word. Pray. Know Jesus. One author said this, everything our hearts seem to long for is located in a conversation with God. So pray from being deceived. And the third one, the intentional thing we can do to keep us from being deceived is to live in community. We need each other. We may not like to be around people. Anybody relate? But we need each other. There are so many voices out there of subtle compromise, of subtle being pulled away. This, this, this mindset in the culture says, well, you do you. I'll do me. 
There's this voice that promotes isolation. And God designed us to live in community with each other, to help each other, to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable. Godly men and women who risk being known and who risk being loved. Jesus finishes in verse 23. He says, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Jesus doesn't leave us defenseless or equally handed. He gives us everything we need. Ephesians chapter 3, 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, so we are well equipped to handle the things that are to come. The Lord is more concerned about the condition of our character rather than us worrying about the condition of the world. I want to close with a few points. The first one is this. Bad things or worse things are coming. But don't let them consume you. Our focus needs to be on what Jesus is doing in us and through us, not in what the world is doing around us. It seems that most would agree and argue that more and more every day Christianity has gone from the foundation of the country to the enemy of the country. And that as our culture and as our country continues down this path, it gets darker and darker and darker. But remember this quote. It is often in the darkest skies that we see the brightest stars. And that's what we're called to be. The brightest light in the darkest nights. People will hate you, but remember, Jesus loves you. What really matters most to us is Jesus' love for us. The third one is there is an end to the destruction and persecution, and it's Jesus. There will be a day where Jesus will come back and set everything right. And until then, we press on. The fourth one, focus your life on Christ and his call for you. My simple prayer for us this week comes from Frederick Beekner's quote that God will stir a hunger in us for the marvelous. That Grace Community Church will be described as a helpless hungerer after the marvelous. That we will begin to pray and think and pay attention in a real fresh way with the Lord. That we would stop eating at the table of the secular and sensational and take a seat at the table of his love. One author said this, prayer is an invitation, not an obligation. Let's be those people who find out about prayer. Our awareness of what's going on around us needs to motivate us, not captivate us. There are people who need to know the truth of Jesus today. So we need to live in the present in light of the future rather than just living in the future. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for Jesus talking to Peter, James, Andrew, John, and to each one of us this morning. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity. God, I pray that you would give us a desire to be a student of your word, to pray, to hunger for the marvelous, 
to live in community, to be intentional. God, help us, we pray, in light of this passage, in light of things to come, challenge us in our attitudes and what it looks like to follow you. And we trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.